0: Well, everybody who has done a bit of uh, decorating at home will know that paint is one of our great friends. Uh, Paint is really the decorator's good friend, but it also can be a bit of a deceiver. Uh, Paint is able to freshen up uh, the oldest house, uh, brightening up a little bit, pretty up the most dreary looking house making it look much newer and much nicer than what it really is. Uh, It covers up cracks, it covers up uh, really even a bit of damp, uh, at least for a a little while. Uh, Now, it is one thing to use paint to pretty up your home, uh, an external decoration, so to speak, But it's quite another thing in tricking yourself or deceiving yourself in um, just an outside external decoration of our life, the moral changes that we may do, uh, external works that we may do. Um, Such a a decoration, such a bit of paint uh, is very deceptive and can be... Very disastrous. Uh, painting the outside of one's life with a lick of, of moral respectability while the inside, one's heart, is empty and void of the Spirit of Christ. That is deceitful, that is dangerous, that is ultimately damning. Uh, now we are in Matthew 12, and the second part of our message. Signs of Unbelief in 4D. And after last week's sermon's introduction, it was talking about 4D and Shrek and, and Donkey and falling spiders with puffs of air and donkey sneezing with squirting water. Some of the feedback that I received from the message was that it was decidedly two-dimensional. Uh, but I did warn everybody that I was only going to cover two of the points from this part of uh, the series, the four Ds of the signs of unbelief. And so the thought did cross my mind to hand out little water pistols this morning, um, just to use with discretion um, at appropriate moments during the sermon. But I was warned by people much wiser than myself not to tempt the Lord's people beyond what they can bear. And that uh, perhaps I could not or should not trust you with the responsible use of such props. And so therefore, no water pistols this morning. But, but in all seriousness, uh, don't let my attempts at humor distract us from the seriousness, this very serious and very sober, very stern message which Jesus gave us against unbelief, because unbelief really is often very subtle. It is very sophisticated, but it is always serious serious, and is always suicidal. It attempts to remove us from the life which is found in Christ, which will ultimately kill us. And so, not believing God's Word or His provision of His Son, Jesus Christ, ultimately has eternal consequences. Not believing God's Word, given to us so that we may know Him, given to us so that we may know His will and His ways, His plans and His purposes, has a devastating consequence in this life, but also for the, next, the life to come. And so, this is what we see in our passage today. Uh, we'll read of an evil generation... Uh, that, was, that they were fixated on religion, fierce in their self-righteousness, fervent in their moral reformation, but without faith or sincere faith in God, without a genuine devotion to God, without a heartfelt commitment to God. And there is no deeper descent, no greater uh, depravity, No graver danger than a moral life without faith in Jesus Christ. There is no deeper deception, no greater depravity, no graver danger than to know Christ and not believe in Christ, not to trust Christ. And so we are in chapter 12 of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, a pivotal chapter Um, Matthew sought to present Jesus as the Christ, as the king, and he's done so in the first ten chapters. And then in chapter 11 we start reading about opposition to Jesus as king from the people. And chapter 12 we find the outright rejection of Jesus as the Christ through the religious leaders uh, really accusing him of not being of God but of the devil. And so from verses uh, 38 to 50, we have discerned from Jesus' teaching really four signs of unbelief. And last week we did two signs. So the first one was a desire for signs when the Pharisees came to Him and asked Him to show them a sign so that they would believe. Uh, Jesus, of course, answered and said that no sign will be given them but the sign of Jonah, which really is the sign of the resurrection, of Christ's resurrection, and that they ought to live by faith and not by sight. Another sign was given uh, that we've discerned was that of disdain for grace. that that generation of Jesus had received incredible light. They had received much revelation, much grace through that revelation. They had the law and the prophets, they had Jesus Christ right there in their midst, teaching them, showing them that He has the authority and the power to bring about the gospel, uh, the, the, the kingdom of heaven right there and then if they would repent and believe, but they refused. And so He said that that generation received far more light, far more revelation, far more grace than the men of Nineveh, Who ultimately repented in dust and ashes, even at the preaching of God's most reluctant prophet. Uh, Also, he says that that generation received more grace and more uh, light than the queen of the south. That she, based on a very little grace really reports about Solomon's wisdom, went to extraordinary lengths to hear more, to see more, to, and, and to experience more, and then to express her marvel and her wonder and to show her appreciation for God's grace to Israel through King Solomon. Yet that evil generation had something far greater than Jonah or Solomon in their midst, and yet they refused to believe and so today we will look at another two signs of unbelief the sign, or really the descent into depravity and the distortion of perception. So let us read the passage, chapter 12. I'll read the whole passage from verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil Generation. And while he was still speaking, the crowds behold his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you, Lord, with expectation, Lord. Expectation that you would speak to us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would hear us as we ask, Lord, for your help. That you would grant us grace. Lord, that you would grant us understanding, Lord, that we would uh, believe what we hear, that we would understand what we hear, and that we would act upon it, Lord, I pray. Help us through your Spirit now, in Jesus' name, amen. And so first of all, we see the the descent into depravity verse, from verse 43 to 45. And here, continuing on from, from what Jesus just talked about, about someone greater, than, something greater than, than Solomon and Jonah, he then really wanted to wake them up, I believe. Wanted to stir them, wanted to shake them up so that they would awake from their delusion, from their deception. And so he warned them through a little parable. And this parable is, is directed against their unbelief. He used the story of a, a once demon-possessed man, uh, probably because of the context that, that they were in. Um, we know, of course, that this man in verse 22 was was delivered from a demon possession, a man who was once mute and, and blind. Uh, so it could be because of that. Uh, but a, a parable is, is really a, a teaching technique by which something unknown is explained by comparing it with something known through a short story or an extended metaphor. A parable usually only makes one point, occasionally more, but, but for the most part, a parable of only one teaching point. Uh, and therefore, when interpreting parables, we need to guard against reading meaning in every detail of the little story. Um, These details are given to, to communicate effectively the main point. It's really to color in the main point, so to speak. But the problem for us today is that unlike that generation, we are really unfamiliar with demon possession. It's not something that we easily relate to. We don't know much about it. We don't see that. And so that's one problem. The other problem is Jesus did not give us a lesson in demonology uh, this is a parable. And so again, there are many details which we simply do not fully understand. But the main point of this parable, I believe, is that there is no deeper descent, no greater depravity, no graver danger than a moral life without Christ. So let's, let's look at this, this parable. Uh, we are not told who this man is and how he got possessed, nor how the demon left him. Uh, this could be, as I said, a reference to the man in verse 22, uh, that this, this, was, this was what happened to him. Uh, we don't know. We do know that many whom Jesus have healed uh, physically did not believe in him. Uh, remember in Luke 17, there were 10 lepers that, that uh, asked to be healed, and Jesus sent them to show themselves to the priest, and on their way they were healed, but only one returned, and that a foreigner, to give thanks and glory to God while the others did not. And uh, it's more likely that this was just a general story that can happen when someone is delivered from demon possession, but someone who then subsequently don't turn to Christ in faith. Now, the Bible talks about demon oppression and demon possession. Oppression is really a demonic influence from the outside Uh, And we we see that manifesting in the belief and actually propagation of false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.1 tells us, but the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Also, the practice of immorality and idolatry is is often influenced or caused or under the influence by demonic, demonic activity. Uh, Revelations 2.20, But I have this against you, that you tolerated the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Demonic influence is also um, behind division, jealousy, uh, pride. Uh, Even in the church, Uh, we read that in James 3.14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. And where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder of every evil thing. So demonic oppression is from the outside, which can escalate into demonic possession. Uh, demonic possession is when an unclean spirit or a demon enters a person and exercises control over the really the faculties of that person. Uh, it exercises its will through the person who is possessed, and often has physical manifestations. We read of changes in voice, uh, muteness, and blindness. In, in in the context of our passage, sometimes supernatural strength, like the. The uh, the person with a legion of demons in Mark 5, nakedness, self-mutilation, even insanity are all really manifestations of someone or could be manifestations of someone uh, possessed by a demonic spirit. The scripture also indicates here that there are levels of severity in the control or the influences that demons can exercise on a person, depending on the number of demons who possess the person or the the evil nature of those beings. Uh, So demon possession was a known entity to that generation and a frightening one. And I'm sure in telling this little parable, it may have disturbed the leaders and the people in his hearing. Now, the parable tells us that upon leaving the man whether that is voluntarily or under command by by Jesus or uh, by God, we are not told how or why, but only that it then goes about and roams in waterless places seeking rest. Again, we're not sure what that means. Um, Some, based on other passages in Scripture, which are rich in figurative language, speaking of shaggy goats and hairy goats and night monsters, uh, figurative, uh, figurative descriptions of demonic beings, that demons tend to dwell in dry and desert places. We read that Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, and Revelations 18. Others think, uh, my clu- myself included, that demons are unclean spirits and are supernatural beings that uh, do not need water or any other physical sustenance. Uh, but they yearn to occupy a physical body, whether that is human or animal. Remember the, the pigs, that, uh, the legion, that they, they, they pleaded with Christ not to send them into the abyss, but to send them into the pigs. And so the waterless places could be a description, um, really, of uh, the, the difficulty, the, the torment that, that demons experience when they are not within a physical body. Demons are by nature arc sadists. They seem to find it unbearable not to inflict some sort of harm, some sort of hurt on their victims, particularly through possession. And it may be that these waterless places are, are the dry places, and because there are not many people around or animals around, that there are not any bodies for them to possess. Also, it may indicate to us that it was not easy for them to possess a body. That The Bible teaches us that de- demonic possession is usually associated with idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says, The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Also, it, 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 uh, demon possession can can happen through the participation or the involvement of occultic practices. Many who came to faith in Ephesus in um, uh, Acts 19 were involved in occultic practices. And on, on, on repentance, they burned all their, their books. And we read at that, in that passage as well that the sons of Sceva were trying to uh, exorcise uh, a person demon-possessed. But as I said, Jesus was not giving us a lesson in demonology. And so, although we are trying to understand all the details, not all the details are directly important for the point that Jesus was making. And so here we read that once they were in the waterless places, they could not find another house to occupy, so to speak, and so they decide to return using disturbingly possessive terms. I will return to my house, the house of its former abode. And he finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. It was vacant. It was empty. No one occupied this house. Therefore, it was Available. It was also swept, basically cleaned out. All the mess that it made before has now been removed. It was put in order. It was fixed up, decorated, so to speak, made more presentable, even attractive. In other words, it was painted on the outside. And so what, it, what does it do? It goes and calls seven of its mates more evil than itself, seven other demons roaming the waterless places without rest. And it seems like just as men, so apparently among demons, there are degrees of evil they are willing and capable of committing, descending degrees of depravity, they will are willing to stoop down into. The point is, the man's subsequent condition is far worse than at first. Now he is possessed by eight demons, seven of which were more evil than the first one. And so however tormented and afflicted he was before, this man is now eight times worse off. Eight times more deceived, more damaged, more distressed, more disturbed, more dejected, more depressed, more despondent, more despairing. And then these jolting words, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. And so what is the point of comparison? How how does this relate to that generation? As I said before, there is no deeper descent, no greater depravity, no graver danger than an outwardly moral life without Christ at the center, without faith in Christ. No deeper descent, no greater depravity, no graver danger than to be religious without faith in Christ, is to be morally reformed. Without the presence and the power of the divine reformer, and that was that generation. So let me explain that. You see, Israel was entrenched in idolatry from the days of Egypt. Even when they came out of of Egypt, that was a habitual sin. Stephan or Stephen uh, in Acts seven. Testify towards that. Our father. this is verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. This is now to God, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of Of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophet. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of of the God Rompha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond. Babylon. And so Israel had fellowship with demons throughout uh, her history. God always had His faithful remnant who trusted in Him and served Him. But for the most part, Israel's history was that of unfaithfulness to God. And both in the Old Testament and New Testament, idolatry um, is the work of demons. They influence, they deceive, they enticed Israel away from God into idolatry. And that was so throughout Israel's history, until they were finally exiled to Babylon. They were removed from the land of Israel, the promised land, because of their unfaithfulness to God. As God said He would, should they be unfaithful. And following their exile to Babylon, that's where reforms began to happen. It started. They, they start to move away from the worship of physical idols. And they returned to the promised land. And they remained there relatively idol worship free, at least physical idols. Now by the time of Jesus, the temple was rebuilt. Temple worship was restored. And there was a strict adherence to the law of God. It was taught and practiced fervently, especially by the Pharisees. The law and the prophets were held in high regard. The Pharisees and the nation had the appearance of respectability. They held to a very high or strict moral code. A high standard of righteousness. But the problem was it was all paint. It was just An outside decoration. It looked pretty good from the outside. But as the parable reveals, the inside was empty. Swept clean from all the old vices. And it was well ordered. But it was empty. Unoccupied. God was not at the center. God was not at the heart of the reforms. Their moral reforms, their righteous pursuits, their religious activities were purely external. For their house was absent. God was absent. He was not the motivation. He was not the power. He was not the source or the center of their religious and moral reforms. And therefore, they missed Christ and they rejected Christ and they will descend into depravity. And the point Jesus was making was that they had cleaned out the outside of, of the cup but the inside was still full of robbery and self indulgence. Matthew 23 25. They sought to clean themselves up for themselves so that they would look respectable, so that they would receive the glory instead of reflect the glory of God. They were whitewashed tombs, beautifully decorated graves, nice on the outside, but the insides were full of dead men's bones, the insides were rotten. And they would travel land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, they make him twice as much the son of hell as themselves. There is no deeper descent, no greater depravity, no graver danger than to think you are right with God because of your outward moral religious or or rigorously religious activities. But your heart is far from God. Nothing is as depraved as the self-righteous. When self-righteousness blinds you from seeing that God is absent from your devotion, absent from your dedication, absent from your moral display, that was that generation. That was a evil generation. And so people, this parable, of course, was directly aimed at that evil generation. But God's Word, principles from God's Word, are, they are transcendent. They are relevant to all generations in every place. And so this parable, or the, or the thrust of this parable, reminded me that the most difficult people to reach with the gospel are those who are morally upright, who trusts in their own goodness, and therefore see no need for Christ. It is far better the vile sinner, the, the hardened criminal who knows they are evil, who knows they are guilty, And they may have even have tried some some moral reform themselves, but found themselves bankrupt to make any changes. To them, the gospel is good news. To them, the gospel is hope and power and life. But the ones who perhaps grew up in a moral home, perhaps who went to church regularly and have learned to conform to expected behavior of parents and of church, the ones with no blatant outward sin, they are far harder to reach because they often don't see their need. They often trust in their own goodness. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who knows they can't make it. They don't make it. I also think there is a warning in it for us not to assess our relationship with Christ on our moral behavior, on our practical standard of righteousness. Now please hear me right. We need to grow in practical righteousness. We need to grow in practical holiness. We must be holy as the one who called us is holy in all of our conduct. But those things, righteousness and holiness, must flow from a heart that is warm towards Christ. It must come from a heart filled with the love and thankfulness for Christ. It must grow from a vibrant, living, active faith in Christ, a daily trusting in Him. That is the true measure of our relationship with Christ. Do I love Him? Do I want to spend time with him? Do I want to be like him? Even though I may not quite reach that standard, which we will never in this life, but we can grow in that. And so our relationship is not from a house swept clean and put in order, yet is empty but from a life filled with Christ, a house where Christ dwells through His Spirit. And we need to beware of Christless religion, Christless religious activity. We need to trust in Christ, believe in Him. Another possible application... A warning is to anyone who has heard the gospel, anyone who gained some knowledge of Christ, perhaps even professed faith in Christ, professed trust in the gospel, but are now turning back to the world. Perhaps because of the love for the world and the things of the world. There could be many reasons. But they have decided to return to the world. Peter warns in 2 Peter 2.20 For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments handed on to them. There is no deeper descent, no greater depravity, no graver danger than a moral life without Christ, without with a Christless religion. That is the descent into depravity. There is also the distortion of perception. Verse forty-six, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who, is, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so here we read that while Jesus was still speaking, while he was still ministering, he was interrupted by the arrival of his family, his mother and brothers, who wished to to speak with him. Uh, Joseph is not mentioned. It's most likely that Joseph has passed away at this time. But Matthew does not tell us why they came. Uh, The Gospel of Mark gives us a little bit more uh, background information. He wrote that they came to take Custody of Jesus because they thought he was he, he has lost his senses. We read in Mark three twenty one. Perhaps it was the busyness of his ministry that sometimes he, they were not even able to to eat a meal because the need was so great. Perhaps it was the things that he taught that he would say that he is greater than Jonah and than Solomon, or perhaps it was by the. Motivated by the animosity of the Pharisees who were already intending to destroy him. And so they concluded that there must be something wrong with him. We need to, to take hold of him, to take custody of him. Because they thought he has lost his mind, has lost his senses. Probably something similar to what the, the, the Pharisees were saying, that he was possessed by Beelzebub, but more in a softer way. Um, Anyway, Jesus' family at that time did not believe that he was the Christ. Perhaps Mary did, given the the revelation through the, the angels given to her at his birth, and subsequent her treasuring the things that she saw and heard from Jesus. But definitely his brothers were not believing in him at that time. We read that in John 7, 5. Later on, of course, after his, his death, resurrection, and ascension, his mother and brothers all believed in Christ. We read in Acts 1:14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with his along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. But at that time, when they came to claim him, they were not believing in him. And this this could have been a bit awkward for Jesus, maybe even a bit embarrassing. But Jesus was not angry. He was not upset. He loved his family. In fact, he will die for his family. And at the cross, he made provision for his mother, asking the disciple John to, to look after her. However, he used this incident as another teaching opportunity, reiterating the need for faith in him. The need for all people, including his own family, to believe in him. And he asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And What Jesus was really asking is, who truly belongs to me and to whom do I truly belong? Who is my spiritual family? And he answered his own question by pointing to the disciples, saying, they are the ones who believe in me. They are my mother and my brothers. They are the ones who have responded to the gospel, repented and believed. They are the ones who have come to know me, not just know about me, but know me to the point of trusting me. They trusted him and counted the cost. They trusted him and denied themselves. They trusted him and picked up their cross, their crosses. They trusted him and followed him. They trusted him and confessed him before men. They acted on their faith, their trust. And so Jesus then broadens the scope of those who may or can be part of him and part of his spiritual family. And he says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and mother. Whoever is, is pretty broad. It's an open invitation to anyone. Anyone can become part of Jesus' spiritual family. Anyone that is who does the will of him. The Father. So what is the will of the Father? Good question. I'm glad you asked. The, it is to believe in Jesus. John 6.40 we read, For this is the will of my Father. This is Jesus speaking. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Obeying the will of Father begins with believing in His Son. And it is in believing in His Son that we are doing the will of God, and it is believing in His Son that we become part of His spiritual family. And ultimately, our spiritual family is the only family we will have for all eternity. Even Jesus' earthly family had to repent and believe in Him as Savior, in Him as Christ, in Him as Emmanuel, God with us. And the will of the Father is not only to believe in Him, but to listen to Him. It starts with believing, but it continues by listening listening to Him by following His teaching, by obeying His commandments, by doing His will. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, John, and James were with Jesus and He was really transformed into glory. At that time, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Obey Him. And it's important for us to understand that, that faith, that belief, is not merely an intellectual exercise. It is not merely giving an intellectual assent to knowledge about Christ. It is not simply a mental agreement with the truth claims Of Christ. To believe means to trust. And I and I would encourage you, as you read your Bible, that when it asks us to believe, just just in scriptures, just think or insert trust there. Because belief can just be an intellectual assent, but trust means i entrust myself to christ and what he has done and what he has said and i think this is where the distortion that i that i mention of unbelief may come in the distortion of our perception it distorts these truths distorts the truth or the perception that to be part of jesus family That we can merely affirm Him or know something about Him. The distortion of perception comes in when there is a disconnect between professing our faith in Christ and practicing our faith in Christ. A disconnect between word and deed. The Apostle John Wrote about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. He reads, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has fully been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so unbelief distorts this truth. It distorts this perception. It deceives us. To believe that faith in Jesus for salvation is all that is necessary. And again, I'm, I have to be very careful. To, I have to understand what I'm saying here. I'm not, I'm not advocating works here. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. But faith in Christ alone produces Response produces a change, produces action, and so to conclude that I can believe in Jesus for salvation, but that He then makes no further claim on the life that He just saved is a distortion because He does. He requires that we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He requires that we live for Him. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died, and He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. He requires that we worship Him, that we offer up our bodies a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. He requires of us that we would walk with Him, walk in the light, walk in love, walk in truth and in wisdom, walk worthy of Him. Walk in holiness. He requires that we serve Him, that we obey Him, that we would lay down our lives because of our love for Christ and because of our love of our spiritual family, our mother and sister and brothers. He requires that we abide in Him. He requires that we grow in His likeness all of which requires the presence of His Spirit and the yielding of our will. These things are not simply add-ons. They are not merely external decorations, a lick of paint. They are Spirit-born, Spirit-enabled, Spirit-enabled, uh, sorry, Spirit-empowered. They are the spiritual fruits of trusting in Jesus. They reflect the new owner of the house, they reflect that this house is now under new management. And it is the work of God and the yielding of our will to Him. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So often we, when we struggle to grow in in holiness, to grow in Christ-likeness, we sort of knuckle down and determine, I just need to try harder. I just need to read more. I just need to pray more. And those things are essential. But what do you pray for? Cry out to Him to change us. Because if we are just doing this in our own strength, I can promise you tomorrow you will be there again. He needs to change us through His Spirit as we trust Him, as we walk in His Word. And the sanctification is this wonderful combination of God working in us and we... Yielding to Him. And so it's a synergistic activity in us that changes us. That causes us to desire to do the will of the Father. And then, of course, there is always the sober warning that Jesus gave. That on the last day, many will protest, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who practice lawlessness are those who are known for denying him with their deeds while they professing him with their mouths. Who refuse to do the will of the Father, who refuse to walk in His ways and His will. Maybe one further application, an important point of application for us, where we may distort our perception of coming to Christ, being part of His family and that relates to our own families we should not be lulled into a false perception into a really a deceiving perception that our children that our husbands that our wives that our brothers and sisters in our own families will somehow come to Christ, be part of His family, by just being part of our family. Because, because they grow up in a Christian family. And we've all heard the saying, "You know, growing up in a Christian family does not make you a Christian. And so we need to be careful not to be lulled into a false perception. A distorted perception. But we should be active in teaching our children about faith in Christ. We should be active in pointing them to Christ. We should be active in urging them to believe, to trust in Jesus. We need to tell them and we need to show them what it looks like. We need to exhort them to trust Christ. And so this whole passage, last week and this week, we've discerned from Jesus' teaching that there are four signs of unbelief. It is a desire for signs that before I believe, I want the Lord to show me something. And we are called in Scripture to live by faith and not by sight. It is a disdain for grace. It is when we have received much revelation, much light, yet we do not respond to that. We do not act upon that. It is to descend into depravity. It is painting the outside of our house while we leave the inside rotten. There is no deeper descent, no greater depravity, no graver danger than a moral life without Christ, than a Christless religion. And then lastly, a distortion of perception. We are warned against claiming to know Christ, while that knowledge produce no spiritual fruit in our lives. Because to belong to Jesus requires trust in Jesus. And to trust in Jesus is to do the will of the Father. And so we are called to trust and obey let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for your word, Lord. We, we thank you that, that you give us these passages, Lord, to warn us. Lord, our hearts are so deceitful and, and so desperately wicked, And so we come and we ask by your spirit, Lord, alert us to our own areas of unbelief. Lord, I believe that everyone here professes you to be Savior and Lord of their lives. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that we would do the will of your Father, that we would live in light of the grace we've received, that we would live by faith and not by sight. That we would not just seek outside or external moral changes in our behavior, but Lord, that we would be changed from the inside out. And Lord, nor we should be deceived in thinking That while I profess Christ with my lips, and I have no fruit in my life, that I am right with you. Help us, Lord, to discern that. Open our eyes, if that is true of us. Show us the areas where that is true of us. And transform us, I pray, by your grace through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.